0: Welcome to The Cutting Room, I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. The Cutting Room is a part of the podcast section of The Art of the Guillotine. Each week, The Cutting Room visits editors in their cutting rooms, where they discuss their experiences and techniques. I'd like to remind our audience to join our email list for weekly updates and the chance to win monthly prizes. At Art of the Guillotine, we are also starting something new. We want you, the listener, to send us what you consider the greatest film ever edited. Just submit it via email to us at info at I'd like to thank you for listening to The Cutting Room. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes by searching The Cutting Room. I'd like to thank this week's guest, Michelle Hoser. Michelle is a documentary film editor from Toronto, Canada, who's worked on such films as Shake Hands with the Devil, A Promise to the Dead, as well as David Suzuki's The Nature of Things. Michelle's work has covered tough subject matters such as genocide and its aftermath. Her editing has won her praise and awards. She's certainly proven herself as a great documentary film editor. So, Michelle, I'd like to know how did you get into film, and specifically, how did you get into documentary editing? Uh, not many editors go into documentary editing because of its tough nature.
1: Well, I went to Concordia University and uh, worked at the audiovisual department, and uh, so you're around all the different equipments and stuff, and worked at labs, and, and I don't remember how it happened. I think, you know, as a student, you, you're able to fi- work in the different fields within production. And I think the first time I sat down at an edit desk, I realized that this is where the magic happens and uh, and I felt really comfortable and I think part of editing is very intuitive and um, I just felt that that was a place where um, I could do you know the best work so started like that and then my first job was at the film board and I worked as a production assistant with Bonnie Klein, Balani Sher Klein, I don't know if you know her Bonnie was uh, a filmmaker at uh, Studio D and uh, did uh, if you love this planet? Uh, well, she was a producer. Sorry, she was a producer on if you love this planet, and she did the um, very well-known film. Um, of course, I can't remember the title um, about pornography. Uh, I know uh,
0: yeah, no, just, I think A love
1: sto- not a love story. Yeah, it was called not a love story. She uh, it was groundbreaking ba- at mm-hmm. the time and uh i didn't work on that with her she uh i must have called her a hundred times <laughs> a friend of a friend or a family acquaintance knew her, her husband's secretary anyways i got the number and i was young and i was um unafraid to call someone and bug them for every day and i, I must have called her you know every day once or twice and left her a little message and she finally told me look i'm tired of hearing her your message on my machine, come and work with me. It was a Sunday morning. She must call me at 8 o'clock in the morning. And I showed up Monday morning, and I worked on, I had an internship with her. And through there, um, they were looking for um, people who can run their editing systems. And I just fell in it because of my audiovisual background.
0: You had mentioned to me before that you had thought about going into series work. What was it on that career path that led you into documentary?
1: The world of documentary editing is, or documentary filmmaking, the difference between, let's say, a drama group and a, and a documentary. The creative team in a documentary is very small. You've got key people. There's a cinematographer. There's a researcher, if you need, a, a, or a writer. There's the sound person, the composer, the director, and the editor. And that's the whole team. In a drama, I mean, how many writers do you have? I mean, or a feature film, you've got a writer, a director, you've got a whole team behind production. And the editor is sort of one in many. And in documentary, um, the editor and director work very closely together to create... Uh, the final film. It's the closest to being a film director except it's not your head on the block. And which is a big difference and a big big difference but in terms of if the director is good enough and secure enough in his position or her position will allow the editor to explore and to do what is necessary to get the story across. So in essence the creative team like you're two and uh, that's irreplaceable. And to be honest, human stories, real stories, really um, have a resonance to me. And, um, and when you work on these stories, when you see these real people like General Delaire or Dr. James Orbinski, when you see their work, it's very inspiring. And, uh, you know, plus there's a whole lot of that you learn in every new film. So it's a sort of passion.
0: You talked about story in there and working with the director. How do you go about building a relationship with the director to get to the point where you're allowed to...
1: How do you build the trust? Well, yeah. There's not one single route, but it's probably the most important relationship between the editor and the director. I mean, what happens is a director... um, Usually by the time they come to the edit room, they spend one or two years with the film idea, maybe less if they're lucky, sometimes even longer, you know, Uh, depends if they got their funding, uh, how long it took them to film. And by the time they come to the edit room, their film ideas have taken many different shapes and turns and Maybe not the same thing that they first started with. They had all the problems with the shooting, all these compromises. Oh, my God, they're going to fit in the edit room. So by the time they come to the edit room, they're pretty battered and bruised. And it's the job of the editor. And plus, you know, all the mistakes show up. And if they don't have the trust of the editor that they will, that I will or that anyone will see the the mistakes for what there is but at the same time find the good in all of that um so it they come in and they've got all their warts and all their stuff there and you just have to start afresh and you know obviously uh give them confidence that they are going to have a good film and you know what when they come in with a hundred hours sometimes you don't know what you're going to get and uh it's interesting with them New directors, they want you to tell them, I do have a film, right? I do have something new, right? And you try and convey as much as possible the optimism that, sure, you're going to get something out of there. But it, it's, um, it takes time. And at the end of the day, if you're honest enough um, with the director and with the material, usually you'll get something good out of it. And if the director is able to see that, and give you the leeway and the space that you're going to go off with the material and you're going to explore certain things, but at the end of the day, it's for their benefit. Um, Some directors won't let you go there, but a lot do. And then when they see the results, they're very happy. They're very happy that you haven't um, abandoned them. And I think one of the important things about how to gain that trust is what happens is as soon as they come in, you share in their responsibility and that as an editor, yes, they've spent two years, but once it comes in there, you are implicated as much as a director. And if they feel that, then that's the first stepping stone to, to gaining that trust, that you're not going to abandon them, that you're not going to midway through the rough cut, tell them, you know what, sorry, but your film is mediocre, or I'm not going to help you as much. And that means there's a certain amount of, um emotional uh, engagement in the project because you're sharing in the responsibility with the director. And if the director feels that, then you they usually let you go off and do what's necessary.
0: Okay, so let's say you get the project and the director has a vision and it's not there. What approaches do you go through with the footage to find the story?
1: Well, sometimes their vision is not there. That's true. But sometimes there are parts of their vision are there. Or there's a compromise to their vision or there's something even better. And usually what you do is when you look at the material, you the first thing you do is you look for those golden nuggets or moment in the material that will, you know, bring out the best in the material that you you know, that you're gonna lay out in your arc in a, you know, that will make it shine. And um, sometimes what you have to do is cut a scene the way they want it, to let them see that, you know what, it's not going to work this way. I worked with a very well-known director, and he was fantastic, and the first thing he, and we had both, he was coming out of journalism, I was coming out of more films for the festival, and we said, okay, let's see how we can do this, and he said, okay, let's start with the opening, and I said, all right, and of course, the opening's always hard, and he had his idea, And his idea was very worthy, extremely worthy, but maybe not for an opening. And certainly not for a television opening, because it was gonna be a television show. And his writing skills and his research skills were absolutely flawless. But in terms of visual representations, they weren't gonna match what he had written. And so we tried doing his stuff, and he was, he was strong enough and secure enough in his own abilities. As, as we were working, he looked at me and he says, this isn't working, Michelle. I said, no, this isn't working. And he said, okay. And he said, I have to go off. You're on your own with opening." And that was great. And what I did is build an opening that was necessary, which I thought would be necessary for the film to work, to gain that excitement, to do an opening that was sort of um, in context to the theme of the show. And once we did that, then we were able to address um, his more, uh, his other idea. Um, So I did an opening, he came in the next day and he loved it and it was fantastic. And it was the beginning of a great working relationship. And, And it turned out to be a great film. And I took his other ideas and made him work on another level, in another area. He wanted to bring in poetry, and sometimes poetry in the beginning of a film is very difficult, certainly for a television audience. But if you do it in the second s- scene, like if you give them a, a wow, you know, great, exciting opening, and they buy it, and they go, okay, we're with you. All right, if you're with me on that one, then maybe you'll take the poetry on the second or in the third. And that's how it worked. And the broadcasters, too, in the beginning didn't like his whole uh, poetry line. And it wasn't very big, and it wasn't uh, very esoteric. It had a very strong meaning in the story. But it's where you place it in the story that was important. So to go back to your question, how do you take his vision? You look at where the vision comes in. Can you fit it in? Maybe not in the way that the director had wanted to fit in that vision. But maybe in the larger context of a story, it has its place. And my, I don't want to use the word boss, but I serve the story. I don't serve the director. I serve the story, the character. And if the person, again, has enough courage and trust and um, confidence, they will understand that that's the most important too and then go with it. And in this particular case, it worked. And, in, you know, once once you've gone through one film, and I remember at the end of this film, we had a great time and we both looked at each other and we said, okay, now we're ready to work together. Because you've gone through that one process and you've gone through the difficult moments and, the, and um, I knew the person's strong points and the weak points. And that's what happens. Each of us have, you know, their strong points, their weak points, how they're going to respond to stress, how they're going to respond to screenings, to changes. And once you go through that, because it's a very emotional roller coaster, uh, uh, creating a documentary. Though when people come in to visit, they, they don't see that at all. Uh, once you've gone through all of that, then you're able to feel better and know that you're going to come out of it the other end. And usually what happens is that's why, if you notice, directors will often use the same editor over and over again.
0: So they've survived.
1: Yeah, and you don't want to go through that again.
0: So you cut a lot of stuff with heavy tones to it, such as genocide, and you'll be with it all day in the editing room. How do you manage to face this material all day and yet separate yourself from the content?
1: Yeah. Ah. Uh... Yeah, it's very hard. And, um, you know, you almost don't want to be detached emotionally. Because that means you become desensitized. How do you say that? Desensitized. Desensitized. Yeah. And you don't want that to happen. I mean, that's why you're doing this Mm -hmm. type of work. But, yeah, uh, doing Shake Hands with the Devil, or doing this latest one, Triage. I don't know if you saw it. They're tough, difficult films to do. And... When do you, are you, and you always come to question yourself, are you using these images to shock? Are, you know, when do you cross a line? Are, are you are you just thinking, oh, there's a battered children, wouldn't that be great here? But these people have lives and stories and, and sufferings. So you try and keep that balance between being attached so not to, um, to have the respect for all these stories but at the same time not feel like the world is falling apart and you're going home depressed every day. Mm-hmm. So there is a balance to keep there.
0: Yeah I see it being very tough to work with because well shake hands with the devil would be so
1: It was a difficult one I mean there's the personal story General Dallaire, uh that um, some people you know I mean he's a national hero but not in Belgium. Not in France. Well, certainly not in Belgium. And um, I don't know if you saw General Mackenzie's recent book. I mean, there are people here in Canada also who believe that General Delaire didn't act accordingly in, in Rwanda. But that aside, um, he has a very personal story touch. You want to make sure that you, um, that you respect his story. There's a story of the, you know, uh, 900,000 Rwandans that died. Um, and uh, and it, it's and you want to make sure that you're historically um, accurate at the same time as you try and reach out to those who are not necessarily interested in Africa, but are also more interested in the humanity of the story. It's a very human story, um, that of the genocide of Rwanda. And, and, you know, and it examines our Western world in not the greatest light. So it's not, it wasn't an easy film to, to put together.
0: There's one scene that has a lot of tension in it that sticks out in the film for me, and that's when the Belgian politician accuses Delaire of not doing his job. How did you go about building this tension?
1: Uh, there's two things about that scene. The first is where it was placed, and second of all, how to create a sort of um, spiral downfall for a character. Like, I don't know if you notice the way uh, there, the dramatic arc is that we build him up in the beginning, a sort of a hero. And then him coming back, being that hero that you and I think he is, there are costs to it. There's the personal cost. So as soon as we finished building him, we started bringing him back down. And the first was his personal cost so he had he he had all his demons to struggle with, and uh he he almost committed suicide, so there was that side and then he had to deal with the world's response to what he did and I don't know if you noticed the scene before the um the Belgian scene he's talking to Rwandans he's at a he's at a, in um in an auditorium mm-hmm. And he's talking directly to them, and he's talking to see why there was failure. And he was very pointed, he said, because, you know, why didn't we come to your aid? We went to Bosnia. But that was different. They're white, European Christians. You are black in the middle of Africa, and you have nothing to offer as a country. And so we failed you. We failed you as as a Western world, and I failed. And it was very important, dramatically, that we understood that he took responsibility, that he himself felt that he failed in the mission. And in fact, now General Delaire does not like being called a hero because he feels like he failed his mission. And so with that feeling, him admitting defeat, it's very easy to beat him up even more with the Belgians, because he's down already. He's, he has self-doubt. Um, he has demons to deal with. And the interesting, it was a conference, and the Belgians still believed that what he did was wrong. And why do they believe that he's done? Because 10 of their soldiers were killed. And there's always the debate. Should the generals uh, follow the mission? Then their soldiers, then themselves. And in this particular case, he, and I mean, it's a whole debate, you can read uh, Mackenzie, but he, um, the Belgians believed that it was Dallaire's fault that those 10 soldiers were killed, that he put them in harm's way. And some people say, you know, there's all this talk about 10 Belgian soldiers, and we don't talk about all the Rwandans that died during this thing. Yes, it was a peace mission, but there's, an, a, there's a, a balance between, hum, you know, as he says, one human life, is it equal? One Belgian soldiers versus one Rwandan's? There doesn't seem to be a balance between the two. And in fact, in that particular scene, when that Belgian um, politician accused Dallaire, Dallaire was not in the room. Now I built it as if he was in the room. In fact, he attacked him, he's attacked him, almost cowardly, knowing that Dallaire wasn't in the room. Dallaire was being interviewed outside of that hotel in a terrace. And in fact, when he heard he was being attacked, he rushed in, flew the doors open uh, of the conference and everyone was quiet. And he walked down the hallway and everyone was really quiet. Now. That I didn't have on tape. I had him being interviewed out in the garden. I had the Belgian politician criticizing him, but I didn't have that cowboy moment when Dallaire flung himself through the door and walked in ready to attack the Belgian politician. So we tried to recreate that moment, and it didn't work because it paid too much attention to try and recreate what was going on of that exact moment. And so as an editor, what do you do? You can't recreate what happened, but you can recreate the feeling and the intention of what was there. So we decided, well, we should put him in that scene, but we shouldn't let him answer him. We shouldn't let him be victorious because that's not what happened. What happened is there was a full attack on him and he had no way to defend himself by not being there. And so we had cutaways of him being a bit disappointed but not at that exact moment and that's how we built that scene and you felt him being personally attacked right yeah but those two moments didn't actually happen
0: i'm your host gordon burkell and this is the cutting room well that brings up A couple of questions regarding shake hands with the devil. There are so many elements. How do you address so many...
1: How do you keep the threads going? Yeah. Yeah, it's like you have four or five knitting needles at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, it's not easy. It's not easy. I mean, you've got him returning, which is one thread, which is an easy thread. Sort of easy because wherever he's returning, you have to get the context of where he is. And then you have the genocide itself and his backstory. And then you have his personal story at the end, you know, that everyone thought, Oh, he's going back after ten years. Will he survive? Is this good for him? Is this bad? Um so how to keep that all going? Um and you have you have him interview, you have archival material, you have photos. Um as long as each one serves a story. I mean, I don't know if you noticed, the first third is the backstory. I mean, we establish him him going back to Rwanda and being there after 10 years, it's the 10th anniversary. We see that he's a bit um, uneasy about going back. Uh, and then we launch into right away the backstory because that's very important and then um, understand his, his conflicts while returning, and um, it's almost in a third. You know, once he does that, then he, then you see him. Uh, it's as if most of the archival material is in within the first third of the film. I don't know if you notice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after, it's mainly the material of him being there, and then there's a lot of the personal struggle and his more. We end more with with him as a personality and who he is I mean it's his personal struggle what's paramount is story yeah story is the most important thing and that's what you're trying to do and you take archival out of context to fit your story and um, each scene is not there as a scene of itself each scene is there within the dramatic story and where does it fit in and it does one thing not two one thing to advance the story now sometimes in documentaries because a lot of things happen in the scene they'll keep it in oh but this also happened yeah but what does that do to your story does it advance it so sometimes people keep in more then the story gets muddled then okay it's a good documentary or it's a great scene on its own but you know sometimes you watch a documentary and you don't really get it at the end or you get little moments but you don't have this larger feeling at the end Well, it's because the story is muddled within scenes. They're just scenes, and there's nothing that ties them together. And so that's very hard sometimes for a director to say, look, it has to do only one thing, this scene. It can't do too many things. And if you notice, in drama writing, that's that's how they work. Each scene is there to advance the story. Okay, sometimes you can have one scene that doesn't really advance the story and it's there for indulgence because it took the director so long to to film and isn't it fantastic? Sure. Or you can take a detour. But if you have too many detours or too many scenes like that, your story falls apart. And if you cut the scenes independently, without the, and sometimes you do that. Like the best way to start, I know one of your questions is you have 100 hours. Right, so you digitize everything, everything. There's not one thing I won't digitize. Even a faulty camera, you digitize everything because you never know what could be used in the story. And by and early on, you don't really have the story in your head. You don't. I mean, you sort of have the treatment that has been written, but if you follow the treatment, you're in big trouble. And then, how do you start? Right, you got a hundred hours. and when I start a project it's not fun I've got knots in my stomach I just see problems and I see this mountain that I have to climb and it's not going to be fun and so the good way to start and and this is a lot Peter Raymond's way is that you work with core sequences so you take one sequence that you know is going to be important and or something extremely good happens and you cut it independently and what happens is you're testing the material. How is it cut? How what are the techniques you're gonna to use to make the scene work? Now you can't impose techniques. Depends how it's shot, depends how the, the moment is, depends on a lot of things. And you cut two or three core sequences like that, maybe more. You cut five. And then you say, you know, so let's say you cut five. They've you started with an hour and a half of material or two hours or whatever, and you've cut five scenes, you've got 25 minutes. Wow, 25 minutes. You say, that's great. That's like half the film. In reality, it should be maybe 10 minutes of material, or 8 minutes. A scene doesn't go longer than two minutes. If, if you're very good, and you've cut all the fat, it runs at a minute 50, 2 minutes 10. You know, sometimes longer scenes, you know, We'll go, But in general, they're short. Uh, but you've got 25 minutes. We think you do. And you let yourself believe you got 25 minutes because it feels better. And at that point, you can start. And by then, you've worked two or three weeks or whatever it is, two weeks. And you've got a feel for the material. You've figured out a style of cutting. And that includes as little as... You're going to use dissolves or not? Um, You're going to, because that's a certain language, or you're going to do straight cuts because that's another language? Um, Is it going to be verite or not? Does it work verite? Um, Is it, um, what kind of time span are you working with? Can you, I mean, even, can you change time? That's very important. I just worked on the documentary where they followed someone for a year um, who had cancer. Well, you couldn't play with time. It had to stay in the present moment, like a fiction film. I couldn't use a scene, like I couldn't, we had to start in June and continue to, to, the, to the end of June. And I, and I had to cut in present time. I couldn't cut in past time, oh, this happened. This is happening at the moment right now. And so that gives you limitations. It's almost like a grammar structure. You can't move you can't use material in different ways. So when you cut the five or six core sequences, all those questions a lot of questions have been answered. Are the interviews good? are the sound qualities good? like sometimes the interviews can't be used as VO. or sometimes it's better to see the person. What is going to be the cutting style of this particular film? And again, it's not something that I decide. it's just something that the material organically imposes on you. And then once you do that, again you've had time to digest at night what the story arc is going to be, what, how these and then you know all the different scenes because when I did, when I organize my material, I don't organize them by tape reel. Never use tape reels. Use names uh, when you work with things, and you use scene names. Because tape names, who cares that it's tape 50 or 60. You're only going to use them in the beginning and at the end of the online. and if you're not the online editors, it doesn't really matter what the tape name is. It's important the scene. Delaire at um, the morgue, Delaire at the airport. Um, those are things that you can fix in a, or you have a mental um, map in your dramatic arc, where those things fit in. And so after two or three weeks, they sit there in your brain and you're thinking, and once you've cut a cool bunch of core, you can say, okay, what's your dramatic arc? And then you think of all the other scenes you don't cut. Oh, this can fit here. This can fit there. This will be useful to say this point, you know, is it going up in the arc? Am I gonna use it as a backstory or am I gonna use it uh, to explore downside, the consequence of being a hero. It's not by chance that the scene is there. And there's nothing in there by chance. Nothing. Everything is calculated. Sure, there's certain things, there's magic that happens when you cut. It's not like you've decided everything. Things come out. And that's in helping cutting those core sequences. But once you cut those core sequences and you've got your dramatic arc laid out, then you go back cut your opening if you're ready to cut your opening sometimes you cut your opening right away and you start building the arc and you start saying okay I'm going to cut what's going to come next this scene okay I'll build it now sometimes when you think a scene's supposed to work at a place and it doesn't then you have to reevaluate your dramatic arc and usually when a scene is difficult to cut that's the problem Because it's badly placed in your dramatic arc. Or you're trying to make it work in a certain way. Or it has another reason in your story. The scene is difficult to cut their reasons for it. It's not because you're not doing a good job. And uh, sometimes I'll spend all day cutting and nothing comes out. It's very frustrating. And then at 5.30 you see the reason why it doesn't work. And it happens. Um, So that's what I do with them. With the hundred hours of material that comes in, and and you know, you wish when you start looking at all the material that this process could come right away, and it and and um, it could be simple. But usually, it's the hardest part of the editing process is getting that dramatic arc um, to sort of vis- to, to materialize and to actually work. And that and once you do that. You can do jump cuts, you can do back cuts, you can do whatever you want. If this story works, your audience is right behind you. They don't care. They don't care for, you know, they don't care. Yes, certain certain viewers like the more traditional form of cutting, you know, there's a language behind it. and And they prefer it. But if they're caught up in the story, they don't really pay attention. Like if you've done your job right, they don't pay attention to your editing. In fact, then they don't even know what you do. They don't, a lot of people don't understand uh, how much a, an editor has influence over the story. They don't understand that. And they don't realize. They think that it's been scripted beforehand. Like if a, if a director comes in and he or she has a, a shooting script, then I'm in trouble. Because that's, I'm, that's not the way I cut anyways
0: you touch on one thing that's quite interesting manipulating the footage do you find that it's a challenge to use editing techniques that the audience is used to and try not to deceive them
1: okay the big question yeah, the big... is documentary objective or is it a true you know the reality of documentary the minute you turn on a camera it's goes outside of reality it's a certain reality it's not the whole truth I'm just shooting one thing in the room I'm not shooting everything so it's a certain perspective so to think that documentary is balanced and is there to reflect reality that's ridiculous it's telling a story like in any other form this is not a journalism in a sense or it's not you know I'm telling you the news today I'm telling you a story it happens to be a real story and that's documentary a lot of people criticize michael Moore because he uses all these techniques and he fall and he's false and you know what he says it's an open and it's like an editorial i'm doing it's not only giving it's not supposed to be balanced and give a whole bunch of uh of opinions yes you can give it if you make your story more interesting, you're going to give the opposing view. Sure. And which is, in case, the Belgium sequence, right? Mm-hmm. That was very important. Not everyone believes Gen- General Dallaire is a hero. Um, but what is wrong with using... It's as if there, there's something about the documentary form that has to stay... What's the word I'm looking for? Authentic to reality. And again, your truth is not my truth. You can have three people describe the same scene that they saw this morning and they'll all have a different perspective from where they see it. So there's not one truth out of there. And what's wrong with it's a visual medium. And in there, there are certain, again, um, structural and uh, almost grammar rules that you have to adhere to because that's what we're used to right we are the there's a visual language out there, and you and you have to use it properly in order to tell your story properly and if you do it, then the audience is going to understand I'm at the beginning of the story here I am I'm giving a sort of roadmap, and then I'm thrown into the story, then there are crossroads then there are And if it's done properly, you have a feeling where you are in a documentary, right? Oh, here's the beginning of the end. Those are um, visual, like, grammatical rules in documentaries that make it that you are always, the audience always knows where they are in the storytelling. When you read a book, don't you feel that too? Don't you understand certain stories? You know, they give you the story development and then they develop and then they tie it up and and then there are are sort of morals or truths that come out at the end. Well, your story has to be the same way or structured the same way in a documentary. And a lot of times I try and ask a documentary filmmaker when they came out, what's your moral of your story? Because there's always a moral. Why are you doing this? What's the moral of the story with General Dallaire or with James Orbinski? Or I just did one, Erwin Barker. He's a comedian, writer, a, a comedy writer, works for this hour's 22 Minutes, works for The Rick Ross Report. Last year, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer on his birthday and given one year to live. And some um, film producers thought, this is a great story. We're going to follow him. And his response to his terminal illness was, I'm not going to sit down and take it. I'm going to fight back with comedy. And so they filmed him. Now, everyone believed that the story was going to have a downward spiral, that either he he was going to die at the end or it was going to be sad. And once I started getting the material, well, actually, the opposite happened because his approach to fighting um, his illness or his hardships through comedy actually brought him strength. And chemotherapy also brought him strength. And his whole approach, you know, in the beginning, he was much sicker than how he was at the end. Now he survived his year. It's going to be on television actually in 10 days. And when I got the material, instead of being a downward spiral, it was actually a very uplifting story yes he still has terminal cancer and yes he will die from it. But the moral of that story is comedy allowed him to face something very difficult with courage and with laughter and it's as if, and his big line is, cancer may have my body but it will not have my spirit. And. That is a life lesson to approach in any difficulty we have, in any kind of... Now, my husband and I worked on this film, and we started joking more in our relationship. And when there was a stressful moment, if one of us threw a joke, all of a sudden the stress would disappear. And that is a life lesson, and that is the moral. It depends on your perspective. If you're able to approach difficulties in life with humor... And, and with laughter, you'll get way more out of it. And that's sort of the moral of the story. And we were at the um, Halifax Film Festival with it uh, this week. And uh, Wednesday night was a screening, and the audience just loved the film. And it's more of a life-affirming film than a film about death. And again, when we started that, the, the vision of the filmmaker was it's going to be a sad story. Well, guess what? It did the opposite. And the filmmaker, young filmmaker, was um, courageous enough to let me, he brought the material, left me a month with it, came back, and then we worked together. But he allowed me to um, just free reign with the material. Do Now, of course, there were certain things that I knew was important for him, and I, I knew what he liked and what he didn't like, and I tried to address his... his um, issues, and I try to address the characters' issues, and of course the broadcasters, because they always pay the bill. Um, but he gave me full reign, story-wise, and um, he got a call last night at the end of, well, the festival ends this week, and they strongly advised him to be at the award ceremony today. So it was an all right, uh, all-around great experience being at the festivals.
0: One thing I really want to talk to you about is Studio D. Not many people outside of Canada know what that is. Can you tell us about it and how it influenced your work?
1: Well, I'll give you an example. Oh, hmm, Studio D. Well, Bonnie Klein from Studio D gave me my first break. And uh, it was an internship with her and um, learned a lot through her. And um, it's a studio that was formed um, at the Film Board in Montreal when it were all, most of the productions we were doing. They don't have production like that anymore. And... Um, they did films uh, for women, about women, um, done by women on, of course, women's issues. And at the time, it was, it was groundbreaking because, you know, films were being made by men, about men's subjects, and, uh, you know, once in a while, a woman. Now, what was interesting is I was working, at the time, there was um, an editor, Sedoni Kerr, great editor, who had to do a, a retrospective, of the of the uh, Studio D's um, library, because it was their 15th anniversary, and I think it was the uh, film board's 50th anniversary. And we had to do um, a retrospective documentary. And why I was hired, because at the time it was just between Steam and and nonlinear system, and we had this horrible tape-to-tape editing system. I don't know if you... Uh. Well, it was either, yeah. you know, at the time it was either uh, Betacam SPs, you know, you or you, uh, it was or linear like linear stuff, editing, yeah. yeah. And we had two VHS machines with a cutting board, and the horrible thing is just, you know, you do your first assembly, and if you wanted to add something in the middle, well, you'd have to copy the first part on a brand new tape, put the piece in, and so you'd have like 30, 40th generations of stuff. But what it allowed me to do is... uh Look at their whole library of films, and there were some fantastic films in there. Um, and what was rare is I was working with a, uh, a very, very good editor, Sidoni Kerr. Now, unfortunately, these were finished films, uh, so um, I didn't get to uh, really take advantage of all her techniques and her processes. But because I was working the machine beside her, I wasn't i was able to work close to her and that taught me a lot as opposed to coming in like now assistants come in at night right digitize import export clean drives Uh, my assistant when I hire the person they sit there and I in the same room daytime I have two machines Um, they have to use headphones because we're in the same room before I used to have them in separate rooms Uh, That works too, depends on the assistant, but uh, it's a, you know, an editing room is a very intimate space. And having them in the same room allows them, so if I say, can you get me an assembly reel of this material? They see what I'm cutting and as soon as they get me assembly reel, I use it. So then they can see what I've done with their work or their prep work. Now I don't have time to do all this prep, and it's very important to get assemblies We're going to, have to go find this, to go find that, and so they have an intimate um, perspective of how I use what they're what they're cutting or what they're getting for me, and then they have an intimate view of how a documentary film is made. Now, sitting at night, digitizing material—it's so boring, and then they don't get to see oh, this was being used that way, that, and then. There are magical moments in the edit room, and then the assistant gets part of it, and it's a great feeling. When a scene works out or when you start building your rough cut and you see it take shape and you see it work, it's such a great feeling. And um, that assistant is able to see that. Now, I had that experience working with Sedoni Kerr at Studio D, that intimate relationship and in where you work work the problems and the struggles, because even in a retrospective, there, th- even though you're working with finished films, the, the the retrospective in itself has to have a cohesive feel to it. It has to have, again, a meaning, a moral. It it the audience still has to come out with something, even other than, you know, these are the library, you know, these are the hundred films or whatever of Studio D. Is there a larger message? that Studio G was trying to do? Is there, um, is there a larger meaning? And that's what you're, tr- you're in hopes in trying to build, you know, putting this film first, for, for that film next.
0: Yeah, Studio D.
1: Anyways, it's with also Sidoni that I learned that editing because we work closely together.
0: One thing I'd like to ask you and I ask all the editors I interview, what is your favorite guilty pleasure film?
1: Guilty pleasure, like something I shouldn't be watching but I watch?
0: Um, like something that's not that popular. Like, one editor really likes Buffy the Vampire Slayer.
1: Hmm. I don't know. I should have asked me that before and then I, uh... <laughs> Oh, I. Uh. It's probably some kid's film. Mm, I'd have to think about that one. Um, which is one of my favorite Watching kids' movies, I think. Because mm-hmm. they have such a great moral story and everything works out right at the end, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, one of my favorites is... Um, uh, not Ants, which is the other one. It's, it's a, bug's a Bug's Life. life yeah. I love It's a Bug's Life. I love Little Flick. I think he's a great character. He's so earnest, and it's a great story. I'd
0: like to thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. I'd like to thank Michelle for allowing me into our editing suite. I'd also like to thank our producer, Lauren Woodcock. Remember to join our email list and also submit your suggestions for the greatest film ever edited via our email address at info at auditheguillotine.com. You can also use that email address to contact us with questions about the show or just general comments. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.